0: Following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. In this church history sermon series, we take a look at people and events that still speak to our time and place. For more information as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. For those of you who are visiting with us today or new, uh, you are coming in in week number three of a six-week series on church history. We are preaching. Uh, through a series of events, people, things from church history that are directly tied to some aspect of scripture that has real meaning and significance for us today here as a church, for Cornerstone, or for the American church as a whole. And so we are continuing through that series. We're going to begin today, though, by reading the first nine verses here in Ephesians chapter 2, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. In verse 1, Paul writes, "...and you And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together again today. Um, Our desire through this little series has been to show us that the things that we see today, the things that the church struggles with today, or sometimes benefits from today— They are tied to your providential working in the past, or they are tied to man's failures in the past. But regardless of either direction that goes, the one thing that is constant, the one thing that never changes, the one thing that we should always be running back to for our foundation is your word. And so I pray today as we look at another moment here in church history, and then we tie that directly into this passage we've read, I pray that your word would be clear, Spirit, I pray that you will take it and apply it to our hearts and our lives, that you will change us through it, that you'll remind us of the great grace that we've been given and how our confidence is not in ourselves and it's not in man or man's methods or practices, but it is in you and you alone, God, to work in people's hearts and to change us into your image. And so we give you this time. We ask your blessing on it as we do each week. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever gotten yourself into a situation and realized that you have uh, bitten off a little more than you can chew? That would um, that would definitely apply to my week this week in terms of preparing for this message. As I mentioned a few moments ago, today is the third installment in our little preaching series here on church history. Last week, Chris taught on the great hero of the Reformation, Martin Luther, and his rediscovery. He wasn't a rediscovery in reality, but for him it was, and for the Reformers it was. His rediscovery of the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. I read his sermon notes. I didn't have a chance to listen to it yet, but it sounded like it was great. Chris decided to focus on someone very well-known, Martin Luther. Two weeks ago, I took a little different path and picked a pretty much unknown second century heretic named Montanus as my first uh, foray into this, And I thought I'd follow that pattern again this week and choose another lesser known figure from church history because the easy ones like Martin Luther are just, that's for wimps. And Chris clearly is. (laughs) And since he's not here to defend himself, I have no qualms saying that. Uh, Now this week, I want to introduce you to a man whose name is Charles Grandison Finney. As you can see from the beardless picture on your left, not only was he an important figure in American Christianity in the early 1800s, but he was also a big star of pre-Civil War horror movies. <laughs> Just picture him with a chainsaw. <laughs> would you want to run into him in an alley? I don't think so. Uh, this would be one case where I think even Grace Scurdy would have that the beard helped. And if you don't know what that means, please ask her afterwards. Now... <laughs> Unlike Montanus, joking aside, some of you may have actually heard of Charles Finney. It would probably depend somewhat on your age, as well as somewhat on the type of church you grew up in, if you grew up in a church at all. For me, growing up in a Southern Pentecostal church, Finney's name was one I heard from time to time. It was not one that was regularly mentioned, like every week. He wasn't like a hero of our uh, church or our denomination, but he was one that I was definitely familiar with he was considered to be one of the great and most famous evangelists of what was known as the Second Great Awakening. Now, before I can tell you any more of Finney's story or of why he matters for us here today at Cornerstone, I kind of need to set the stage for us a little bit with what was happening in American Christianity and in America in general uh, right before he came onto the stage. To do so, I want to go back to the 1730s, 1740s, and to the original 13 colonies that made up our country. As you probably know, America was colonized by large numbers of people who came to this country desiring religious freedom when they were in England, when they were in Europe, most of these groups were persecuted or marginalized to some degree or another because the main church that was in England, the state-sponsored church, was the Church of England, otherwise known as the Anglican Church. And so the pilgrims and the Puritans and the Separatists and the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists and the Quakers and the Shakers and the Brethren were all showing up on these shores in large numbers seeking freedom of, again, to some extent or another, depending on the specific group, to to practice and follow their religion. And while they had uh, spread out all over the 13 colonies, they were, by and large, concentrated in and around the area that we think of today as New England, the New England states. And having all of these non-Anglican groups in such close proximity to one another, all sharing kind of that common bond of we're being persecuted, we're trying to get away from Anglican church, it led to a general shared interest in spiritual things uh, amongst the colonists of that area. And this really comes to a head in the 1730s and the 1740s with what we call the first great awakening. Now, how many of you are familiar with the names Jonathan Edwards or George Whitefield? Anyone? A few of us, a few of you know, maybe. Uh, these men were were preachers. Jonathan Edwards was in New England, George Whitfield was in England, though he came back and forth across the ocean to preach on both continents. These men were preachers who were used by God, and I want to use this next phrase very, very carefully, and you'll understand why in a moment. They were used by God to bring revival to many people and churches, both in the American colonies and in England. Now, I use the word revival with great care because depending on your background, depending on your upbringing or your use of that word, it can mean very different things to very different people and be used in some very different ways. At its most basic level, the word revival simply means to bring life back into something or to restore life to something. And in the case of the first great awakening, many people saw That movement in that time period is God restoring life or bringing life back into the churches of England and New England. Uh, Many people made professions of faith. Many people recommitted themselves to trying to live their lives according to the the righteous rules of scripture. Uh, Obviously, no one either then or now could possibly go back and say who who was real and who wasn't who was making genuine statements of faith, genuine decisions, and who was just getting caught up in the excitement of the time. No doubt there was a little of both. But regardless, that time was viewed by many of the people who experienced it as being a great outpouring of God's presence on the churches of those areas, the likes of which they had never seen before in their their lives. Now, fast forward from the 1730s, 1740s, about 80 years into the 1820s, and both America and the American church now are drastically different. Uh, Since the First Great Awakening had occurred, the American Revolution happened there in 1776 and 1770, 1780s, that time period. And so all those um, um, colonies, the 13 colonies, are not colonies anymore. Now they're states. In fact, there's extra states now. There's 22 by the time you get to 1820. Uh, The frontier of American expansion in 1740 is like central New York and central Virginia. Imagine Richmond as being frontier. That's weird to us because we're so used to our own state and how, uh, how life is today. But in 1740, central Virginia would have been frontier land, wild, untamed, By 1820, the frontier has moved out to Kentucky and Indiana and Illinois and those kinds of places. From a religious perspective, in 1740, all those non-Anglican churches, all those uh, different denominations I mentioned a moment ago, they're kind of new and exciting, even a little risque because they're they're not authorized or approved by the Anglican Church, by the Church of England. And so to be a part of those churches is kind kind of exciting, but by 1820... Now there's a Bill of Rights, and freedom of religion is the law of the land. And so now to be a part of one of those churches, it's a lot more commonplace. So things are just, just different, just like it would be today if 80 years passed, and you look back on what it was like now, just, just different. But one thing that hadn't changed in those 80 years was the desire by many to see that revival of the 1730s and the 1740s sweep over the churches again. And around 1810, early 1800s, it happened. Revival started spreading again through the land, through the churches, and it is referred to both in American history and in church history as the second great awakening, and many people were genuinely excited for this new revival to sweep the nation, and it's in this context now that a man named Charles Grandison Finney comes on the scene. Finney was born in Warren, Connecticut in 1794. He was the youngest of nine children. His father was a farmer Uh, He was never formally educated, but as he got a little older, he apprenticed himself to a lawyer and tried to learn uh, law. But at some time during that time period where he's apprenticed to this lawyer that he experiences a dramatic conversion to Christianity in 1821 at the age of 29, he becomes associated with a Presbyterian minister named uh, George Washington Gale, who attempted to give Finney some... Even if it was minimal, some sense of of biblical and theological training, some ministerial training, But, but Finney himself was not really interested. He never gave himself much to his biblical or theological studies, nor did he embrace or perhaps even fully understand the theology of the Presbyterian church. But what Finney lacked in education, he more than made up for in charisma. The man was really good with people. He was uh, talked about, even at the time we saw his picture, and to us he looks a little different, but most people who saw him thought he was a quite striking figure. He was said to have deep blue eyes and a melodious voice and very good with, with people. And he was particularly mesmerizing as a preacher. He used a very emotional revival style of preaching. And almost overnight, literally, almost overnight, Finney goes from being an untrained nobody to becoming one of the central figures of this thing known as the Second Great Awakening. And he was widely sought by churches of all denominations to come preach in their pulpits and to bring revival to their congregations. And so Finney did. Finney brought revival to those churches. Now, did you notice how I worded that? Finney brought revival. You see, the primary desire of many of the churches at that time was to not miss out on the revival that was beginning to spread again. They had heard about it before and they were excited that it was happening again and and they didn't want to miss out on it. And so uh, they were so uh, concerned about not missing out on that revival that many of them just decided to not ask some kind of important questions about what was happening at the time. Questions like, you know, what exactly is revival? When we use that term, or when they use that term, we could ask it of ourselves as well, what exactly are they asking for? Why did they need it? What had gone wrong in the preceding 20, 30, 40, 50 years of their ministry that had led them to the point to to feel that this was such a big need? And and, and what is this thing now that's happening, and how is it going to change anything? Or, for example, another set of questions, how exactly does God work in our midst? What are we wanting to see? What do we need to see to know that God is actually at work here in our church, in our midst, in our town, in our community, etc.? Another set of questions that were kind of pertinent to the time, who in the world is Charles Finney? He's not a man who came with any pedigree, any training, any accolades, anything that you could point to and say, oh, he's this kind of person, he's that kind of person. No, he just showed up. So what does he believe? Where did he come from? You know, what kind of revival is he bringing, and how exactly is he bringing it? These were All important questions. And do you know why they didn't ask these questions? I mean, obviously I can't answer that question for every church across the board that was involved in this, but but there does seem to be a common denominator in all of the churches and groups that Finney interacted with. They didn't ask these questions because Finney's revival worked. Wherever Finney went, revival followed. Uh, Finney became known as somewhat of an expert on bringing revival to churches and to groups and to towns. Um, He he knew how to do it. His uh, methods were referred to by many as the new measures. That's the phrase they used at the time. His new measures became very important to what he was doing. Uh, By the word measures, they were referring to his practices, his methodologies, the way he does what he does. Um, by new, they simply meant that they had not seen these kinds of things before. These, the things he's doing do not conform to the practices of the churches beforehand. And so, for example, just to give you some ideas of what he did differently, uh, his preaching was long on emotionalism and short on biblical content. Yes, he did preach from the Bible, but uh, his biblical content was very shallow compared to the preaching of many of the pastors of that time period whose sermons were, quite frankly, uh, they're like theological treatises every Sunday. I, I give you beans each week. These guys were giving meat each week when they would stand up and preach. They were heavy on Scripture. Finney was not that way. He kept things a lot more simple. He very much aimed for the feelings, not the intellect. Uh, he would hold these long, protracted services where they'd go on forever, you know, over and over, just long periods of time, where he'd try to get people stirred up about spiritual things, get them uh, either excited or afraid. It didn't really matter to him as long as they felt something, as long as there was an emotional response, then he he was good with that. He'd carry the meeting out as long as he needed to do it. Um, He's the one who really introduces the concept of the altar call. How many of you grew up in churches where at the end of every sermon there was an altar call where you were supposed to come up to the front and make a decision? Raise your hand. I'm curious. Okay, That's Finney. That's Finney right there, the concept of walking an aisle and coming up to the front of a church to make a decision, that's that's from him. Prior to Finney, the general practice of the churches was if, if you're in a service and you hear a sermon preached and you are convicted by sin, or maybe you're an unbeliever and you hear the gospel, the expectation was you should go home. You should go home and think about it. You should go home and reflect on that and meditate on that and consider it and decide whether or not this is really for you. This could take weeks. This could take months. (laughs) That was totally fine and expected. No one had an issue with that. Taking time for personal, spiritual reflection and introspection and decision were the norm. To my knowledge, no pastor before Finney was asking his listeners for a decision on the spot about whatever he or she had heard and then to come forward in a service to make that publicly known now. That that was a pretty much new new thing for him. Finney started that. He had what he called the anxious bench. Okay, a bench that he would put in the front of his meetings where as you heard the preaching, if you became anxious, worked up, excited, whatever had questions about the sermon, you were supposed to come forward, come down the aisle and sit on that bench in front of everyone until someone would come and take you aside to talk to you. About it, don't wait, make a decision now. That all came with him. Uh, Not only that kind of stuff, his sermons were known for being confrontational. At least that was a charge levied against him at the time by his critics. He would publicly condemn ministers who did not do what he did, who tried to stick to the old ways. He would definitely condemn you if you criticized him in any way, shape, or form. He was accused of being crass, uh, rough with his language, at least for the time period, probably nothing today. Uh, He was known to name people in the audience by name in his prayers, not in a good way. It's not like, you know, Lord, we know Sally's here and she needs to uh, be healed of whatever disease. It was like, Lord, we know Sally's here and she is an adulteress and she is an unbeliever and she needs to get saved tonight. He would do that regularly. Um, He did it to guilt people, to manipulate them in his messages. And there's more. I, believe me, this is why I was feeling like I'd bit off a little more than I could chew as I kept working thing after thing after thing. I'm like, what have I done? But that's enough to, at least to give you an idea of what his revival ministry was like. And let me emphasize to you it worked. <laughs> it worked. Amazingly, wherever Finney preached, God worked. Lots of people would get saved and lots of people would make decisions on the spot during the very meetings where he was preaching. It was amazing. No one had ever seen anything like Finney before. Certainly, the blessing of God must be resting upon him and is now being spread out to the churches. And because that was the perception, because that was how people were feeling and because churches were so eager to be a part of this new movement of God in their midst, the second great awakening that they saw happening around them, they turned to someone who seemed to know what he was doing, who was experiencing clear, visible success in his revival efforts without ever really stopping to think about what was happening or without ever really stopping to ask people important questions and to examine his underlying theology. Now, let me pause in my examination or presentation of Finney for a moment and ask you a question. Is everyone in here familiar with the uh, saying that ideas have consequences? You've heard that saying before. You know, that's not biblical. Um, I laugh every time I hear uh, those little surveys where the people are given just Sayings, and they're asked where they come from. They're like, oh, yeah, definitely in the scripture. You know, God helps those who helps themselves. Things like that. This is not from the scripture. It's uh, not unbiblical. It's just not going to be in Proverbs or somewhere else like that. Um, but it is true nonetheless. What we think and believe about something should cause us to act in certain ways. For example, if I believed that on July first the stock market was going to go up one, you know, ten thousand percent, it was going to have the most amazing explosion it's ever had in the history of the stock market. What would I do tomorrow? I would sell my house. I would go borrow every last penny I could from everyone I could. I would invest it all and wait till July 2nd and sell it, and I would be set for life, right? Okay, if I really believed that it was going to happen on July 1st, I would act, or or as another example, if I really believed that I was going to die on July 1st, how would I live, right? That belief, if it was real, if it meant something, should drive me to do something different over these next 11 days. Ideas have consequences. Beliefs cause us to do things. And for us here at Cornerstone, we have beliefs. We we hold to certain truths that should lead us to do certain things and should lead us to avoid certain things. And I brought us to Ephesians 2 to highlight some of those beliefs, a random smattering, if you will, of beliefs this morning. And the first belief that I want to show you is our belief that man is... On his own, apart from Christ, totally spiritually dead. This is the premise upon which Paul begins his comments here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As he talks with the Ephesian believers about who they used to be, he begins by saying, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead in your sins. And, and not to be funny and not to belabor the point and not to use the same joke I've used for 15 years or however long I've been preaching, um, remember that scene in Princess Bride where he's dead and they're having the conversation about how dead he is and the one guy's like, oh, he's only mostly dead? You do realize that's not true, right? <laughs> you get that when it comes to being dead or alive, it's an either-or proposition, One or the other. If you're not one, you're the other. That's how it works. So as Paul says to the Ephesians here that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, this is not a complicated idea. They are dead. There is no spiritual life in them because they were dead. And everything he says afterwards is reinforcing that idea. Uh, You walked, you lived in your sins, verse 2. You followed this world and what it had to offer. You followed Satan himself. He's the prince of the power of the the air here. He's a spirit that is now in the work of sons of disobedience, which meant that when you were dead, Satan himself was at work in you when you were in that state. And like all those other sons of disobedience, when we were dead in our sins, we lived in the passions of our flesh, whatever those passions were for each of us, pleasures, possessions, pride, whatever it was, we lived in them and for them. We carried out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by very nature of the fact that we were dead in our sins, children of wrath, meaning we were people who were deserving of God's wrath. We were under his wrath for our sins, just like the rest of mankind, Paul says. So so this is what Paul means when he says to us here in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 that we were dead in our sins. Our desires were for sins. We followed it. uh, We followed this world. We followed Satan. We didn't even know it, but he was working in us. uh, We lived our lives for the things we wanted, none of which were righteous. And as a result, we were rightly deserving of God's anger and punishment. Now, please recognize that just, you know, these three verses here present a very different picture of humanity than what the vast majority of people around you on any given day believe. Most people believe, and I've, actually many believers are with them, that man is basically good in one sense or another. But, but clearly that is not the case. And, and unless you think that maybe Paul is just overstating it here, Maybe he's being dramatic for effect or something and just trying to drive home a point. I would ask you to consider what he says in Romans 3 where he makes the same kinds of comments but actually even stronger by quoting from various parts of the Psalms to put together his point. He goes, as it is written, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Notice the next statement. No one seeks God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, now our picture of humanity is is even worse because not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we see that none of us are righteous in any way. None of us do good. You say, well, wait a minute. I feel like I see unbelievers doing good. Well, in God's estimation, as God looks at their heart, their motivations, etc., nope, not good, not even one of them. No one understands, and no one even seeks for God on their own. This is how dead we truly are in our sins. And if I were to use a theological phrase to define or describe what I'm talking about here, it'd be the phrase total inability, or to use an older phrase, it'd be the phrase total depravity. Simply put, the doctrine of, of total inability states that man is on his own completely dead in his sins and both unable and unwilling to turn to God. That's what you see here in Ephesians 2. That's what you see in Romans 3. That's what you see throughout the rest of the scripture. Well, so then, if that's true, ideas have consequences, right? If that's true, well, then How is it that people are actually saved? Well, that's where Paul continues on now in Ephesians chapter 2. After describing who we were on our own, he says, but God, despite everything you just read about yourself, all of which was true, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Now, just just pause here so you can notice both the action and the agent of salvation. Notice that the action. I uh, notice that the action is that we have been made alive. Right? We were dead, but now we have been made alive. And this life that we have is not some kind of independent, self-actuating life, as if it came from within. It's ours, and we just had to turn it on. No, it is life that is directly tied to the person of Jesus Christ. We have been made alive together with him. You see that? And apart from his life, then, it means we have no life. Apart from his life, we have nothing. Our spiritual life is completely dependent on Jesus. And it didn't come to us because we were good or because God saw some spark of life in us. No, Paul specifically points out here that this life was given to us while we were dead in our sins. While not after we got over the deadness, not once we had stopped being dead, but in the midst of our deadness, the God who is rich in mercy and who loved us greatly showed us grace by making us alive together with Christ. That's the action of our salvation. Now notice the agent. Who did this? Who made us alive? Was it us? Did we make ourselves alive? Did we we come to it on our own? No, Paul's already said that we were dead well, was it a preacher? Was it someone else that made us alive? No. Only God himself can bring to life what is dead. That's what he says here in these verses. He alone is the agent. You say, well, okay, okay. I see that. But, but don't we play a part? Don't, don't we have to want salvation? Don't we have to repent and believe the gospel? Aren't those the parts we play? Well, yes. Yes, absolutely. They are. No one's saying otherwise. But even then, we'd have to ask ourselves some questions, will we not? I mean, if no one seeks after God, how is it that men seek him? If no one is good and we're dead in our trespasses and sins, then how are we even able to repent and believe the gospel? Clearly it happens, but but how does it happen and why? Well, this is where Paul turns in verses 8 and 9, if I could skip a couple of verses ahead. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. What Paul is saying here is that our ability to desire God, our ability to repent and believe, everything start to finish is not from us, but is from God himself. We are saved by grace, not because we deserved it, through faith, not works. And the entire thing is a gift from him. Why did we desire God? Because we were smart enough to figure out we should, because we, we had something in us naturally that wanted it. No, that doesn't fit with scripture. The reason we desired God was because he gave that desire to us as a gift. As a gift. It was from him. Why did we repent and believe the gospel? Were we able to do that in our deadness? No. It's possible only because God gifted that to us in grace. Even the faith we have in Christ is from God. As Paul sums it up here in verse 9, there is no part of the entire process of salvation that is the result of the works of man because God doesn't want anyone to boast in any of it. <laughs> in other words, there won't be anyone in heaven. I've thought about this so many times. There won't be anyone you'll meet in heaven who'll be like, hey, you know, why are you here? Oh, really? I'm here because Jesus died for my sins and I was smart enough to figure it out. And I don't say that to be funny or necessarily to be, to be rude to people. I'm just saying, what part are we going to boast in? What part will you be able to turn to and say, oh, I figured that out. I did that. That was from me. That was my part. How much of it will be yours? According to Paul, none. God doesn't want anyone to boast of anything. It's all from him. Grace, start to finish. What Paul is trying to help the Ephesians see here is that every single component of their salvation, start to finish and finish to start, is directly from him grace given to them in the person and work of jesus christ on their own they were dead hopeless and lost but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved them us when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's as if, not to belittle this, I feel like this is a terrible analogy, it's as if we're going to be trophies. That's a poor, poor analogy, please understand. But it's as if God's going to be able to point to you and say, see him there, see her there? You know why they're here? Because I was gracious. See him? because I was gracious. See her, because I was gracious. The immeasurable riches of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ will be on display in us for the glory of God and God alone. Charles Finney didn't believe that. He explicitly denied that man, being dead in his sins, I don't know if he would have even used that terminology, I doubt it, But he explicitly denied that that meant that he was unable and unwilling to come to God on his own. Uh, Not only did he deny that, but he very much believed that he could play a part in bringing people to the gospel. And because he believed that, you know, it was just a matter for him of doing things the right way. Um, I'll read you one quote of his to show you this belief. Just listen to his own wording here. A revival is not a miracle, according to another definition of the term miracle, something above the powers of nature. There's nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. It consists entirely in the right exercise of the powers of nature. It is just that and nothing else. In other words, what he's saying is that there was no need for the supernatural working of God in order to bring about revival and change in people's lives. He could use simply the ordinary powers of nature, his own abilities, people's own natural inclinations and desires. All he had to do was just do it the right way, and that belief had consequences. Because he believed those things that man could come to God on his own and that he himself, Finney, could play a part in that, he structured his entire life and ministry around that belief. Every component of his methodology is a direct reflection of that theology. This is why his preaching was long on emotionalism and short on biblical content. Why do I need to take all that time with the scriptures? I just need to convince you to do what you already need and want to do. Um, This is why he aimed for the feelings, not the intellect. He wanted you to feel the need now. This is why he would hold those long, protracted services where he'd attempt to get you worked up so you'd make your decision now. That's why he wanted them to walk the bench to the anxious bench now, walk the aisle to the anxious bench now. Uh, This is why he felt justified in using all kinds of tactics and preaching and praying. As long as it got what he needed and wanted, he felt justified in just about anything. And you know what? It worked. He could get people to publicly respond lots of people. He was great with people. And while there were a few lonely voices in his own day calling out to the churches to examine Finney, think about what he's doing, ask why, you know, think about the theology that's behind this, most of the churches of the day were far too enamored with the visible success of Finney and his pretty much guaranteed revivals to even want to consider such questions. They wanted visible, tangible results now, and Finney offered them that. And therein lies the warning for us, does it not? Now, I'd love to tell you that Finney's influence died with him, um, but it did not. Finney went on to be not only a major figure in the second great awakening, um, he became a training ground of sorts for others, started a college began teaching other people how to go out and do what he did. In fact, um, is anyone here familiar with D.L. Moody, the evangelist D.L. Moody? So D.L. Moody, I believe this story is correct. If I'm wrong about it, I apologize. But um, so D.L. Moody, after the Chicago fire, was uh, greatly depressed. I mean, just, he just, he felt like he had done a number of things wrong, and now all kinds of things had gone bad, and so he went to England just to get away, just to get away. And uh, he goes to England, he's on holiday, and people start to hear he's there, and churches are starting to ask him to come and preach. And Moody's resisting it, no, I don't want to, no, I can't, I'm, I'm on vacation, etc. Finally, it gets too much, and he agrees. But, but, he can't simply, you know, agree and then walk into a church and start preaching. He gets on a boat, he comes all the way back to America, he finds his song leader friend, Ira Sankey, and brings Sankey back over. And now when Sankey's over, now they can have meetings. Why? Well, it's because Moody had, to some extent, bought into Finney's theology that in order to have revival, you had to have certain things in place. And one of the measures you had to have in place, you had to have it in place, no matter what, was, was a song leader. <laughs> Without a song leader, how can you have revival? How could God possibly work? And so he got on a boat and spent months going back and forth across the ocean in order to get Sanky so he could do it. Finney's, Finney's methods, his, his, his theology carried it is, His theology wasn't new, but the way he did things the way he did things, his application of his theology certainly was. And so all kinds of churches, all kinds of denominations began using his new measures to reach the lost and to bring revival. And for a moment, be honest, as I made that comment, as I I typed that sentence even, I thought to myself, that sounds good though. It sounds good to do what you can to reach the lost and to And to bring revival, right? I mean, who's going to sit there and say no to that? And perhaps there were, in a few uh, select examples, I don't have any, but perhaps, I'm just going to leave it open, there were some benefits to the things Finney did and said. But with time and history now on our side to look back at him, it is clear that much of what Finney brought to the church was detrimental. To the long-term faithfulness of American Christianity to both the gospel and to the Scriptures, was detrimental. His methodologies, his measures, are no longer new, (laughs) but they are very much alive and well in the church today. You heard of the seeker-sensitive movement, the church growth movement. These are two very uh, easy to identify modern examples that were basically built on the same foundation of Finney's theology and ministry practice. You could, you could almost take Finney's life and bring it into a modern context and you would hardly know the difference in some cases. Churches outside of those movements were and are to this day affected. I mean, I grew up in a church that was very long on emotionalism, very long, very short on biblical content. Uh, many of you grew up in churches where guilt and manipulation were used as the de facto go-to tool to get people to respond in some way, shape, or form. You know, let's just sing just as I am for the 37th time. And while the music plays, if God is working, come up to the front, come up to the altar. Why don't in the world do churches call a stage or a platform an altar? Altars are where animals are sacrificed. And the last I heard, I've never been in a church where they actually killed an animal at the front. But come up to the altar uh, and let, let God know that you've made a decision in me too. You know that. That, that's Finney's influence at work. You didn't know that maybe if you've been in those churches or in those services, but that's Finney at work. And I'll be very honest, it is tempting. It is tempting to go that route. You know why it's tempting? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, it's tempting because all of us long for quick, visible, tangible results in ministry, just like we do in weight loss, money management, and burritos. We, we don't want to wait. <laughs> if I can microwave them and get them now, I will. Right? Why would we wait then for for, uh, results in ministry? What if we could do something to get results now? If we could do it and get it now, that's better than getting it in six months or in six years or in 60 years, right? I don't want to spend years just preaching through Scripture uncertain much of the time if God's even using it. So why not go that route? Number two, it's tempting because we can do it. I've said for years, and I'll just make the comment and then I'll say why I say it. I said for years that I'm pretty certain that we could, we've got enough smart people here at Cornerstone, we could fill this building to capacity every Sunday ten times over. I'm, I'm positive about that. You say, that's kind of arrogant. Uh, not really. I'm just recognizing that if you just understand people and what they're like, you can do a lot with people. <laughs> I'm, Joel Osteen, come on. Not to uh, offend Joel Osteen by connecting him to Finney, but, um, or Finney by connecting him to Joel Osteen, either way. Um, <laughs> Joel Osteen, as an example, have you ever heard the man preach? He's not that good. I'm just, you know, brother to brother. I'm just calling him out, (laughs) pastor thing. Um, He's not that good, and yet he's got 40,000 people showing up every Sunday. 40,000 people every Sunday. You can fill a room with nothing. I am convinced we could fill this building 10 times over every Sunday. We could do it, and that's so tempting to do things that work and that you can do. Ah, that was number three, I'm bleeding over now, because it works. That's the third temptation is, you know, how do most people measure success in life and specifically in ministry? They do it by counting. We're, we're, we're naturally counters. We like to count things. So if I can count the number of people who walk forward, if I can count the number of decisions, if I can count the number of salvations, if I can count the number of baptisms, if I can count whatever, then I know it must be working. And so it becomes very tempting for us to put our faith in ourselves and in our measures because it's quick, it's visible, it's tangible, because we can do it, and because, frankly, it works. But in response to each of those temptations, can I just throw out a thought? In regards to the desire for quick, visible, tangible results, may I remind you that Jesus told us the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, small, slow, unimpressive, (laughs) that grows over years into a mighty tree. It's not quick. We're reminded that being in ministry is like being a farmer. You don't plant your field and then go out the next day disappointed that you don't have corn. It takes time, it takes weeks and months to grow. In regards to the temptation of of wanting to do it ourselves, I would simply remind us of what God says to Isaiah in Isaiah 42, that he will not share his glory with another. He will not. Not that he cannot, he will not. He is chosen and he will not. So if you see someone who's getting a lot of glory for their ministry, God does not share his glory with another. And in regards to the desire to do it because it works, um, works, I'm reminded of the Lord's comment to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. As Samuel's looking at David and is not impressed, what does the Lord say to him? Man looks on the outside. God looks at the heart. I'm not saying that everybody who, who got saved or made a profession of faith, I'll say that way, in Finney's uh, ministry was, was false. I don't know. I can't judge. I have no clue. I can't say that everybody who does anything here is, is genuine. I don't know. But I just know this. Man tends to judge by the outside. And Jesus said, wide is the way, and many there are who find the, the path to destruction. Narrow is the way, and few there be who find the path to salvation. So if I see herds of people going in a direction... I don't know. It just makes me wonder. That's all I'm saying. Man looks on the outside. God alone looks at the heart. If we really believe that the people we're trying to reach are spiritually dead, both unable and unwilling to turn to God on their own, then the weapons of our warfare, the the measures of our ministry are quite limited, and that's okay. You know what we have? We proclaim Christ. (laughs) And the gospel, because as Chris reminded us last week, the gospel is the power of God's salvation for everyone who believes. And we pray. We pray to the God who alone can change hearts, to the God who alone is building his church as he sees fit, fully knowing that even if we can't see it, even if we can't count it, even if we can't measure it, the kingdom of God is growing and producing the kind of fruit that only God can produce. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, our desire here is just to remind ourselves that, that our faith cannot be in us, in our measures, and our we, we don't produce godliness. We can't produce spiritual. I can't even, I can't even change myself. I can't change my wife, my children. I can't change anyone outside of my home. I can't change anyone in this room. We really have been called in so many respects to an impossible task, but that is the beauty, the beauty of of what you have done. You have called us to live a life of faith, trusting that you will do what you have said you will do, to put our hope in the means that you have provided us. The gospel is not old-fashioned, and prayer is not unneeded. There's no innovation here that we can add, no upgrades or improvements. You have given us the weapons of our warfare, the measures of our ministry, and they are powerful. Forgive us for our lack of faith in that. Forgive us for feeling that somehow we have to make the message of the gospel more palatable to people so we can produce results in some way, shape, or form. May that never be true here at Cornerstone. May that not be true anywhere in your church. Help us to be faithful faithful, humble, and patient, recognizing that your kingdom is growing. We may never see its fruits or not the numbers we would like, but you have promised things and we trust you. You have promised to work and we trust you. You are everything. We are nothing. So help us to make much of you little of ourselves as we strive and work each and every day as ministers of the gospel spread out here around Hampton Roads, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.